At our last church, I was part of the preaching team, but I was not the primary pulpit minister, and that meant I did a lot of preaching, but I didn't do so every single Sunday. And, and there were many times when I wasn't in the pulpit, and particularly at special times, like Christmas Eve services, when I wasn't officially on duty. And during those times, I would volunteer to help in the children's ministry. And it seemed like inevitably I was assigned to the two-year-old room. Now, I love kids, <laughs> but two-year-olds are a challenge. A comedian once described a two-year-old as a child with an eight-foot reach because they seem to have the ability to grab everything. What they see, they want, and what they want, they grab, even if what they want is tightly in the grip of another person. Mine, mine, mine. They don't think about how their actions will affect others. It's all about them. So a whole lot of my time in the two-year-old room was spent dealing with squabbles and tears and trying to get across the idea of sharing. It doesn't seem to come naturally to a two-year-old. Now, thankfully, most kids grow out of this. They grow out of this through the coaching of caring adults, in some cases, they grow out of it through the intense prayer of adults. <laughs> but sadly, not everyone overcomes this tendency. Some grabby kids grow up to be grabby adults. And when the opportunity presents itself, these people love to grab for money or possessions or power or influence without regard for others. And then there are those rare people for whom grabbiness is more than just a periodic behavior. It's a way of life. It's the core of their character and it defines how they live. These are people who have the perpetually grasping instincts of a two-year-old combined with the shrewdness of an adult. The prototype for that kind of person is a man named Jacob. He's a descendant of Abraham, and he lived in the ancient Near East. Jacob defines grabbiness, and it starts at the very moment of his birth. Jacob and his brother Esau are fraternal twins. They're born into a world in which the firstborn son has all the rights and all the privileges, and Esau is born first. And it seems that even in the womb, Jacob can't stand to be second. And he wants what Esau has. And so as Esau comes out, his parents see the hand of Jacob clamped on Esau's heel. And that's how Jacob gets his name. It literally means one who grasps. In colloquial, it means trickster, conniver, deceiver. Jacob spends most of his life living up to or down to that name. He wants to make deals where he comes out ahead, where it's an I win, you lose situation. He doesn't want to voluntarily yield to others. And so when Jacob and Esau are young men, Jacob catches Esau in a weak moment and gets him to bargain away his inheritance rights as the firstborn son. 
Later on, when their father is about to die, dad wants to give a blessing to his sons, yet dad is old and nearly blind, so Esau, excuse me, Jacob sneaks in and he pretends to be Esau and he steals his brother's blessing. Esau threatens to kill him for these kinds of injustices. So for safety, Jacob moves away to a land where his uncle Laban lives. And over the next two decades, Jacob builds a successful business raising sheep, but he does so in ways that seem to take advantage of his uncle. You see, once again, he's burning relational bridges by grasping for more. So once again, he has to move on. He decides he has nowhere to go but back to his homeland. So he heads off with his large family and his servants and his flocks and his possessions. And yet as he travels home, he knows that Esau is waiting. It's been more than 20 years since Esau threatened to kill him. But maybe Esau still has a grudge. Jacob's anxious about what lies ahead. And his anxiety turns to fear when he gets news that Esau is coming to meet him and he's coming with 400 men. Now, that does not sound like a welcoming committee. It sounds like an army. Jacob, out of fear and desperation, springs into action. He sets up camp by a stream to huddle down. He offers a desperate prayer asking God to spare his life and to protect him. And then ever the conniver and the manipulator, he sends some servants off with gifts to appease Esau. to Try and bribe him into some good behavior. And then what happens next changes Jacob forever. That's where we want to pick up the story in the book of Genesis, chapter 32, starting in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's the stream. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Now Jacob's at a major turning point in his life. He spent his adult years grasping and scheming and he's accumulated wealth, but none of this will protect him if Esau decides to attack. What can he do? He decides to send everyone to the other side of the stream and spend the night alone. And sometimes when we're in a quandary, getting alone is the best thing we can do. We have time to think, we have time to assess, we have time to pray. When we intentionally free ourselves from distractions, we're so much more open to God. We're more likely to hear from Him. We're more likely to discern what it is that He might want to do in our lives. Now in Jacob's case, we don't know exactly what he intends. Is he going to pray? Is he going to try to plan and develop some last-minute scheme? We don't know. But what we do know is this, because he chooses to intentionally be alone, he winds up engaging in the strangest wrestling match in human history. It is a wrestling match that spiritually transforms him. Look what happens next. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. 
When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So who is this that Jacob is wrestling with? A man. A man without a name. He's not a known enemy. He's just some stranger who comes looking for Jacob and they wrestle all night. Can you imagine the strength and endurance and energy required to wrestle for hours and hours and hours? Jacob must be one strong dude. And yet, this stranger is just as strong. In fact, he's actually stronger because he merely touches Jacob's hip and it's immediately dislocated. It's not a fancy wrestling move, it's just a touch. And such a man with that kind of power surely could escape from Jacob's grip anytime he wants. He could just touch Jacob's wrists and put the wrists out of joint and Jacob would have to let him go. And yet the man doesn't do that. And if he can do to Jacob whatever he wants, whenever he wants, then he must be voluntarily letting Jacob keep him in his grip. I think that's profound, that this stranger allows Jacob, who is the master of grasping, to hold him tight. And after wrestling for hours, the man essentially concedes the match by asking Jacob to let him go. And that means it's decision time for Jacob. And I believe this is where Jacob starts to change and starts to realize that something truly unique is happening here. Because if he lets go, he wins. And he doesn't. He doesn't do that because that's the old, I win, you lose Jacob. He could bargain and say, heal my hip and I'll let you go. But he doesn't because that's the old wheeler dealer Jacob. Instead of insisting that the man yield to him and his wishes, Jacob, perhaps for the first time in his life, voluntarily yields to another person. And he yields when he says, bless me. I want your blessing. Now, in that culture, blessings are powerful. And the greater person blesses the lesser person. So Jacob is affirming the greatness of this stranger who he's wrestling. And I believe he just assesses all the clues he's seeing, this stranger's supernaturally, supernatural ability to wound along with his willingness to voluntarily yield. They're giving Jacob some clues to the identity of this stranger. And these things tell Jacob that his nighttime visitor is a man of authority, and he has the authority to speak words over him that will be more than just platitudes. He will speak words of blessing that will have power and meaning in his life. And I believe this is the moment when Jacob begins to realize that he is in the presence either of God or God's representative. 
And getting a spiritual blessing from God is far more important than winning. It's far more important than physical wholeness. This is the right time for Jacob to yield. And as we think of what's happening here, let's remember that Jacob is en route to meet Esau, who possibly may want to kill him. And with a wounded hip, it's going to be much harder to flee. By accepting his wound, Jacob's need to depend on God just increased exponentially. And yet he's willing to accept that wound in order to get a blessing. Jacob here is beginning to dramatically shift his priorities. And at this point, to a great extent, the physical wrestling match is over. But now a short verbal wrestling match begins. Let's look at the next section. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Israel in the Hebrew. Because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. Names in the ancient Middle East always have deep meaning. And as we've seen, it's true with Jacob, that the meaning of the name often is tied to the character of the individual. In addition, knowing someone's name was a sign of relationship, of intimacy, of connection, and at times... A name even communicated power. And that's why we see such an emphasis in the New Testament on not just the identity of Jesus, but the name of Jesus. For example, the Apostle Peter once heals a lame man with these words. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. When Peter's questioned about his preaching, preaching about salvation through Jesus, he says there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And toward the end of his life, the Apostle Paul said, I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. It was all about the name, because names have power and meaning. So when this stranger in our Bible passage asks Jacob, what's your name? He means something far different than we do when we ask someone their name. We ask that because we just want to know what to call you. He asks that because he wants to know what Jacob is really like. And when Jacob responds with his name, he's admitting I'm a deceiver. I'm a con artist because that's what my name means. Telling his name here is almost like a confession. And in response, the stranger gives Jacob this new name of Israel, which symbolizes Jacob's struggle against other people and against God. And I believe that as Jacob hears this, Knowing the history of his family and his ancestors, there's a thought that goes through his mind. He knows that his ancestor Abraham 
was met by God and given a new name by God. I think Jacob must be wondering, this stranger is giving me a new name. Could this, in fact, be God? Well, this stranger can't be God if he has a name. Because up to that point in history, no one had ever known the name of God. So Jacob, having revealed his own name, asks the man to reciprocate, and he refuses. He says, what do you want to know my name for? Jacob's trying to gain power over this man by the use of his name. He's also wanting to test, is this man God? Because if he has a name, he's not God, not in Jacob's view. So the man refuses. Jacob, in a sense, loses the verbal wrestling match. He doesn't get what he asks for. And then this nameless stranger, this man who has the power to supernaturally wound Jacob, this man who allows Jacob to keep him in his grasp, this man who has the authority to give Jacob a new identity, this strange man now gives Jacob a blessing. We don't know exactly what he said, but a blessing was almost a prophecy. It was words about you and your future and what God would do in you and through you. And because of all this, Jacob is convinced, I have seen God. Look what happens next. Verse 30, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. The Israelites loved to give places names based on moments of spiritual significance. So Jacob names this place Peniel, which means the face of God. Because he realizes that he has just had a divine encounter. And in the morning he knows it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a hallucination, because he still can feel the effects of his displaced hip. And those watching see Jacob limp away. Now, I find it interesting that the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, they understood that this was a defining moment, not just for Jacob, but for them as a people. And so, as reported here, they chose not to consume the hip tendon whenever they butchered and ate a lamb or a goat. Now, personally, I don't know why anyone would want to eat a tendon in the first place. But they established this practice as a way to commemorate how their ancestor was wounded by God and wounded in a way that was necessary for his spiritual transformation. Jacob, Israel, had wrestled with God. There was a moment when he had God in his physical grasp and yet he chose to yield. And because he yielded, his life now is within the grasp of God. So Jacob limps away. 
He limps away from Peniel, and he limps toward Esau with a body that is weaker and a faith that is stronger. And if we read ahead in the book of Genesis, we see an immediate change in Jacob. Previously, as this caravan was heading home, Jacob had his servants and his family and everyone else at the head of the pack. Jacob was cowardly traveling at the back as they made their way home. Now, however, after his night of wrestling with God, Jacob goes first ahead of everyone. God has embraced him. So he's going to trust that God truly is in control of events. And as it turns out, when Jacob and Esau meet each other, Esau greets him graciously. Why might that be? Any number of reasons, but one Bible commentator has this to say. Imagine what happens as Esau, filled with rage at the past injustices he has suffered from Jacob, sees Jacob limping toward him on the road. This isn't the strong man he remembers. This is a weak, hobbling wretch. And so maybe, just maybe, Esau decides not to attack because he doesn't want to assault a defenseless man. Maybe the limp saves Jacob's life. Well, whether or not that's the case, whether or not Jacob's limp affects Esau. It certainly changes Jacob. We don't know from Scripture if this dislocated hip is a permanent wound or a temporary one, but it serves a profound, lasting purpose. It humbles Jacob. It changes him. It causes him to yield to God. As we read about the rest of the life, we recognize he's not a perfect man. He still is going to do some grasping. But from this point forward, when the chips are down, he will ultimately grasp for God. And he will grasp for God because this wounded manipulator has been embraced by God. God has touched him. God has renamed him. God has blessed him. God is with him. Is anything more important than that? And the fundamental change in Jacob is most vividly seen by the way he prays. Before this night of wrestling, here's how he addressed God. O God of my father Abraham and my father Isaac. He connected with God as the God of his ancestors, but not his God. However, after this night of wrestling, Jacob sets up an altar and names it, Mighty is the God of Israel. Mighty is my God. God is now his God. God is now personal and his faith is personal. And in the years to come, Jacob's descendants will pray to and will speak of the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Everything changes on the night Jacob is wounded. It's the night when God embraces Jacob and Jacob embraces God. It took 
a divine wrestling match for the great grasper to yield and to let himself be grasped by God. So what are we supposed to do with this wild, weird, and wonderful story? I think it's important to realize that Jacob's situation is distinct from ours, and his story is not our story. And yet what he experienced has so much to teach us. For example, if we're honest, we need to admit that when life is going great and we feel like we're in control, we're so much more likely to ignore God. And so God sometimes needs to come to us. And He needs to make us limp physically or emotionally or relationally in order to deepen our faith. And sometimes when we're in a quandary, When we're wounded by life, we need to wrestle with God as Jacob did. Yet, our wrestling with God won't be physical. The way we wrestle with God is through prayer. Dina Martin is a single mom with three children. She's a passionate follower of Jesus, and she describes her own time of wrestling with God. It changed her, just like it changed Jacob. Dina writes, you see, until Jacob had a divine wrestling match with God, until he had a very personal struggle with God, his faith was not his own. Oh, yes, he knew of his father's faith, and he'd heard the stories of his grandfather's faith, but he was only living his faith vicariously through their faith. It had not yet been solidified in his life. And she resonated with that because she says, I've been a Christian my entire life, but I never have truly been through the fire myself. And then I went through a season of trials. And Dina's trials were huge. She lost her marriage. She lost her ministry. She lost all financial stability. She was deeply wounded by life, and she began to wrestle with God in prayer. Jacob's wrestling match with God lasted for one night. Dina's lasted for two years. Two years of heartache and crying. Two years of sometimes sleepless nights where she cried out to God in prayer. And she continually asked God to give her a fresh vision of who he is and of what his plans were for her life. And because she was willing to wrestle, God responded. And Dina writes, I've been through a divine wrestling match with God, and he touched me. Just as he touched Jacob's hip. I am not the same person that I once was. I can tell the change in myself as I talk about God. I find myself so frequently referring to him with terms of endearment. Think about that, terms of endearment. Something that never would have happened before. Thoughts of my Savior spontaneously cause a smile to sweep across my face. I find such joy in sharing how God has seen me through trials. And I find joy in sharing with others. How God longs to redeem their situation. There simply is a sweetness to my relationship with Jesus 
that never existed until I wrestled with God. Dina writes, are you struggling with your faith today? Do you find yourself in a divine wrestling match with God? I know the battle is raging. I know the pain and the fear. I know the frustration as you try to come to peace with God's plan for your life. I also know the change that takes place in your heart when you get to know God's heart. I know how he touches you and changes you and blesses you when you seek him with every ounce of your being. I know the joy of a relationship with God that is fully yours, that truly is personal. Dina's words I find compelling, challenging, and encouraging. If if you've been wounded by life, maybe you need to do some wrestling with God through prayer. If your connection with God seems remote and your faith is not personal, perhaps it's time to do some wrestling with God. And wrestling God is not necessarily something to look forward to. But it's always something to look back on as a pivotal moment in life. Jacob wrestled with God and said, I've seen God face to face. Dina wrestled with God. And here's what she has to say to God's people. Are you in a wrestling match today? Hang in there. God will change you forever.